Hello and welcome to episode six of the Atlanta Man podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Rogers, and we have a very busy episode as there was a huge week in the wide world of Atlanta sports with all three professional teams. Um, the Atlanta Braves had a very busy week. They played all seven days. The Atlanta Hawks started their second round series in Philadelphia against the 76ers, but we're not going to start off with either of those teams. We're going to start off with the uh, ugly duckling, if you will, of the Atlanta sports teams, the Falcons, because they did something on Sunday morning that is just um, a long time coming, pretty much inevitable, and it was that they traded Julio Jones, and they traded him to the Tennessee Titans, um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the entire deal of what the Falcons got, what the Falcons sent away. So, the Falcons get in return, this is what the Falcons get, <laughs> a 2022 second rounder and a 2023 fourth rounder. All right. And the Titans are getting Julio Jones, obviously, and a sixth rounder in 2023. In addition to that, the Titans take on Julio's salary of $15.3 million in 2021, and the rest of the entire deal, the Falcons have $7.75 million in dead money for 2021. So, let's just get into the um, exchange and the compensation that the Falcons got. Um, off the bat, it doesn't sound super exciting what the Falcons got. Um, I, I feel the same way. It's... It's just not the second rounder and a fourth rounder. It's just not very sexy at all. Um, and uh, re the reason for that is the Titans are taking on all of Julio's salary. And it appears that uh, Fontenot drew a line in the sand here that the team that was getting Julio had to take on the rest of his salary and the rest of his, the rest of his contract, um, rather. Um, and, yeah, that's exactly what the Titans did. Um, the Falcons did also send a six-rounder, but I honestly just don't care. It doesn't really matter. That pick is 90% going to turn into nothing. Um, I'm going to say that, and the Titans are just going to like draft the next Tom Brady with that pick or something. But, um, yeah, <laughs> the Falcons get the second and the fourth. That's all they get because they had the Titans had to take on the rest of Julio's deal, um, which – I don't love the compensation that they got back for Julio. You know, you, you would have wished they could have got a first-rounder. You would have wished that they could have got some proven talent. But um, the only way that the Falcons were realistically going to get that is if they were going to take on some of the some of Julio's contract along with that. And um, with the situation the, Falcon, the Falcons are in cap-wise, that just wasn't a possibility. I don't think the Falcons are in a pretty rough spot in cap space. I'll get more into that later. Um, so yeah, it was pretty. It seemed like a like a mandatory thing in this deal that the team had to take on all of Julio's contract, which I can't blame Fontenot for. Um, so yeah, I mean, Falcons got the second and the fourth. They that could the second round pick and the fourth pick those could turn into two good starters. It just depends on how they do it. Um, but as of right now, the Falcons are definitely got worse. Obviously, they just lost one of the best wide receivers in the league. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much all for the deal itself. Um, now I'm going to get into what the Falcons saved here by trading off Julio's contract um, and all the other details surrounding the deal. Um, so the Falcons are going to have the $15.3 to play with in 2021, but 
around seven seven ish million dollar probably a little over seven million dollars is going to go to signing the rookie class um, so that's going to leave them with 8.6 million dollars in cap space after the draft class is signed so a little bit of money to play with for the rest of the offseason um I'm not. I'm not sure if what they're what they're going to do with that. They could go and sign a, like a veteran pass rusher or something like that. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Or they could just have it carry over to next year's cap. Um, you know, I, I they, they'll probably they'll probably go get somebody. Maybe not for the whole eight point six. Maybe for a fraction of that. But yeah, so solid amount of cap space even after signing the rookie class for the Falcons to play with. And like I said before, this was probably the best deal the Falcons could get. Um, considering that the team was eating all the contract. You know, there were reports earlier this week that they had a first-rounder on the table. I do believe the first – either there's two possibilities, the first-rounder on the table and the Falcons are thinking about eating some of the, salary, the, the, the contract from Julio, or the Falcons just leaked that to the media just to um, get teams a little riled up. Hopefully they'll just um, give you a first-rounder and take on the contract just to play some mind games with them. I don't know, really, but if they, that was the plan, it didn't work because they – only got a second rounder and a fourth rounder. Um, another thing is that another another reason why the deal might not be as great as it could have been is that the Falcons lost a lot of trade leverage when Shannon Sharp and Julio went on the air. I don't, I don't know if Julio knew he was on the air still. That, that's that's neither here or there. The whole Shannon Sharp incident on Undisputed probably hurt the Falcons a little bit with their trade leverage. Um, teams now knew that they had to trade Julio and didn't really leave them with many options so that that probably didn't help things at all and I've seen a lot of people passing around blame to Terry Fontenot for caving like like trading Julio and not getting um not getting good compensation back this isn't on Fontenot um the Falcons needed to clear up cap space anyway whether that had been Julio or elsewhere um so I think most of this blame is going to go on Thomas Dimitrov even though he's still not at the helm as the GM but he really left the Falcons in a really rough spot um as far as the cap the cap goes and he also another thing that's worth noting I think is that he extended Julio a few years back while Julio still had three years left on his deal so I'd, I'm not many people love that they did that because Julio was on the wrong side of thirty when they extended him. I didn't absolutely hate it at the time because it's Julio Jones and I was just I was just fine with paying Julio Jones money. I was just I assumed at the time that he was gonna be with the Falcons forever and that just obviously wasn't the case. I'm really sad not thinking about it, but um, yeah, I don't like this. A lot of this is on Dimitrov because he left the Falcons in cap hell, and um, and he extended Julio with when he had three years left on his deal. Which I mean, he is a superstar player, but it would have been put the Falcons in a lot better situation in the long run if they didn't cave into Julio there. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, because at the time I didn't really care because it's Julio Jones. But yeah, um, one more thing about the the whole situation before I get into some other things with the team. Um, twenty twenty one, even if the Falcons didn't trade him, this would have been Julio's last year anyway, because there's just absolutely no way that the Falcons would have kept Julio beyond twenty twenty one. Because uh, Calvin Ridley is going to be making uh, significantly more money next year. I think it's around $11 million, And there's just no way they're going to pay Calvin Ridley $11 million and Julio Jones $15 million, Along with Kyle Pitts, who's going to be on a pretty um, expensive rookie deal considering he was a top five pick. So, yeah, the, it would have been – if there's any solace in this is that just go ahead and get it done now, like rip off the Band-Aid, that this would have been the last year with the Falcons anyway. But, um, yeah, it would have been awesome to see Julio – um, Calvin and Kyle Pitts all together but um, yeah I think this is probably for the best just to go ahead and get it done um, 
And one thing I want to touch on is Julio and his time and what he's done for the Falcons. Um, it, it really can't be understated. He's the best wide receiver in the history of the team. Um, probably the second best player of all time on the team behind Matt Ryan, I'd say. Um, there are just endless, endless amount of highlights from his career. You know, you got the the huge run in the NFC Championship game against the Packers, the fourth down catch on the screenplay they took for a touchdown against the Eagles a couple of years back. Um, just so many things you can look back on fondly. You know, he's had many catches against the Panthers, the one where he just absolutely bullied the Panthers and just stiff arm like three players en route to like a 70 yard touchdown. I mean, I just think about it now, just like endless ones pop into my head. He's done so many great things for the team. I mean, it's just been an all around, just a great guy for the team. He hasn't, you know, in the NFL, there's the wide receiver position. It gets kind of, it really got kind of overshadowed of how good of a guy he really was because of the antics of some of the other wideouts in the league, like Antonio Brown. Um, his are a bit extreme, but then you have like Odell Beckham. Antonio Brown makes Odell Beckham look pretty tame in his antics, but yeah, Julio was never like either of that either of those guys. He was always kept to himself, didn't really cause trouble with the media. Um, you know, he had every right in the world to be just like a, a a cocky cocky player, but he just wasn't. You know, and I can respect that, even though I would have liked to see Julio just kind of get at it a little bit more. But uh, that that that's neither here or there. Um, yeah, so I wish really nothing but the best in Tennessee. Um, Tennessee's got a pretty formidable offense now. I mean, they did before. Um, they don't have Arthur Smith anymore, though, which I think is uh, worth noting. He's with the Falcons now, obviously. But, yeah, they got A.J. Brown. Obviously, he was doing some hard recruiting for Julio ever since um, it was revealed that Julio was going to get traded. And um, they got Derrick Henry, obviously, probably the best running back in the league. And uh, they got Ryan Tannehill as a quarterback. So they'll, they'll have a really solid offense next year. They'll probably be the favorites in their division. Um, all right, not enough of that. I want to talk and talk about the guys that are left with the Falcons, and that's Calvin Ridley and Kyle Pitts. Um, I just want to talk about their expectations for the 2021 season now that uh, Julio is gone. Um, I'll talk about Calvin first. Uh, PFF um, released some projections for um, Ridley after um, Julio got traded, um, and they have Calvin projected to lead the league in receiving yards this year. They have him at 1,561 yards, and that would lead the league. That would be in front of Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, and Stephon Diggs. So they have him as being probably the best wide receiver in the league this year. Um, his overall projections are 100 catches for, like I said, the 1,564 yards and nine touchdowns. So... Yeah, I'm. I'm probably expecting a little, a few more touchdowns than nine. I think he can get to, like the thirteen to fifteen range with all the targets that he's gonna get. And he was a huge touchdown catcher, anyway, with Julio on the field. So I mean, Julio had his issues in the red zone. Calvin really hasn't had that issue. Maybe those issues will arise now that um, Julio's gone and Calvin's gonna attract a lot more attention from defenses. But um, that's going to bring us into Kyle Pitts and his projections, which aren't incredible um, at first glance. But you gotta you got to remember that he is a tight end, but he is going to be the second option. They have him for um, slated for 75 catches, 843 yards, and seven touchdowns, which isn't awful. But I do think that he could um, overachieve those a little bit. I wouldn't be floored if um, Pitts was 900 to 1,000-yard receiver um, this year. I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised if he got – uh, 10 touchdowns either or his catches got to 85 to 90 really either um, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of opportunities for him 
and a lot more for Calvin too. I mean, Calvin was already a thousand yard receiver last year, um, but that was with without Julio mostly. And I want to get into Calvin's numbers last year without Julio, which was seven games that um, that he played without Julio. His his PFF grade was eighty one point three, really solid. He averaged one hundred nine point three yards per game, and he had uh, twenty one receptions of fifteen or more yards without Julio on the field. So he was eating last year without Julio. Um, he he did he he played good even when Julio was on the field, so which opened up opportunities for him. But it did prove that without Julio on the field and him being the number one option, that he could carry the offense, um, receiving wise. And it's not like it's just going to be him and like Russell Gage out there. He's got Kyle Pitts with him, and Kyle Pitts is going to be a factor. I'm expecting Kyle Pitts to be a top five tight end this year. Um, so yeah, the Falcons aren't in a horrible spot with their pass catchers, even with Julio gone. That was one of the big perks of drafting Kyle Pitts, that it softens the blow of trading Julio. And um, you know, at the time of Kyle Pitts getting drafted, I wasn't completely sure if Julio wasn't getting traded, but now that it's happened, you know, the blow has been softened because we have Kyle Pitts. And Calvin Ridley's awesome, and he's going to be, a, you know, top, I think he's like at least a top three wide receiver in the league next year for sure. I mean, he was already around that around that range last year. Um, and his really breakout season. He's been good his whole career, but last year was really his breakout year. All right, so that's going to do it for all the Falcons and Julio talk. And now we're going to get into the Atlanta Hawks, who had a very, very solid week. Um, they wrapped up their series in New York on Wednesday night by winning Game 5 in the Garden. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. I didn't get to watch this game live because I'm a fool who went to the Braves game on Wednesday and just watched them lose instead of watching my Hawks clinch. But, um, yeah, I did go back and um, look through this game. No big takeaways, really, honestly, after the Knicks series because, the the um, not the Falcons, the Hawks are just flat out better than the Knicks. Um, I think after game two, games three, four, and five, everybody just saw that. Um, the Hawks really, they it was close in the first half, but they really pulled away in the in the second half. Not really much to talk about. The, the Hawks didn't shoot exceptionally well in this game at all, and they still won this game handily, which really just shows how how rough the Knicks were in the series and how um, bad they were on offense. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. I'm just going to go and move into Sunday, Sunday afternoon, um, right after Julio gets traded. Falcons, or the Hawks, rather. God, I keep doing that. The Hawks are in Philadelphia for game one. Um, one thing that is very, very noteworthy is that earlier in the week against their series against the Wizards, Joel Embiid did partially tear his meniscus, which is a pretty significant injury. It's only a partial tear, but it was very much up in the air whether Embiid was going to play at all or not in this game. But, oh, oh boy, he did play in this game, and um, he was quite effective. So he ends up playing and starting for the 76ers. And um, bad news for the Hawks also that uh, DeAndre Hunter was going to be out for this game. Um, he was probable for Game 5 against New York, and um, he came in questionable on the injury report, and he ends up not playing at all. So, yeah, on paper, um, before the game starts, Embiid in for the Sixers, Hunter out for the Hawks. The Hawks are even more of underdogs now than they really than they um, were before with um, Hunter playing and Embiid just being a questionable so Solomon Hill gets to start while DeAndre Hunter is out. And the Hawks just got off to an absolutely torrid start to this game. They were scorching the 76ers. 
The the Sixers put Danny Green on Trey Young to start the game, which was honestly pretty shocking. Um, I thought they were going to go with uh, Ben Simmons and Matisse Thybulle. Uh, they ended up they would end up going to that later on the game. We'll get to that later. But the Hawks are like I said, they're rolling out of the gate. They scored twenty four points in their first fifteen possessions in the in the in the first quarter. Um, all in all, in the first quarter, the Hawks pretty much just dominated. They ended up winning the quarter forty two to twenty seven. So they're up fifteen heading into the second quarter. I'm um, here just some num- some pretty mind boggling numbers from the first quarter. The Hawks go six of twelve from three, which is just insane. Um, 76ers have seven turnovers in the first nine minutes of the quarter. And uh, both teams end up using their entire bench units out of the timeout to end the first and to start off the second quarter. So that's where it'll lead to try the second quarter. Like I said, Hawks lead 42-27 to 27 after one. And the Hawks, like I said, with the bench in from the end of the first quarter into the start of the second, the Hawks go on a 17-0 run with the bench in. Um, they do have Bogey join the bench, and he was a huge contributor in that 17-0 run along with Lou Williams. Uh, and 76ers didn't score within the first four minutes of the second. So the Hawks were just absolutely pummeling the 76ers early in the first quarter, or in the, in the second quarter, rather. And they just they had just a pretty massive lead at this point as they were up by 20-plus. Um the Hawks do cool down quite a bit in the second half of the second quarter, but they still win the quarter by five, and they're up by 20 at the half. Um, they also set a franchise playoff record for points in the first half and threes in the first half as they had 74 points and 13 threes. Uh, yeah, so they led huge at the half, 74 to 54, 20-point lead. Um, they had 82% true shooting in the first half. Which is just doesn't it goes without saying it's pretty insane. Uh, Trey Young had twenty five in the first half, which um, yeah he was a huge part. Didn't really talk about him much, but he was a huge part of the first half um, barrage from the Hawks. And it looked like the Hawks were just gonna just boat race the Sixers. Honestly, um, I mean Embiid played good in the first half. Like seventy Sixers offense was fine. You know fifty four points in the first half was far from a disaster, but yeah the Hawks scored. 74 which defensively is a disaster and they turned the ball over a lot a lot a lot in the first half so now we'll move on to the second half of the game and this is where the Sixers start to make their way back into it um, they first they made the most important adjustment of all which was pretty obvious to everybody um, as a Sixers fan I'm probably really mad about this because this should have been the case um, from the jump they put Simmons on Trey Young to start the second, and the Sixers cut the lead to 15 early. Um, and then, but the Hawks, after the Sixers cut the lead to 15, there's a timeout, and the Hawks go on a 10-0 run right after, and the Hawks lead by 25 points, which is their largest lead of the game. So even after the, even after cooling down a little bit in the second half of the second quarter, and the Sixers making their way back into it slightly to begin, the Hawks just kind of reassert their dominance. Um, so they end up leading, they led by 25 points in this game with 17 minutes left. So pretty much five minutes left in the third quarter. They're up by 25 points. The game isn't over by any means, but the Hawks are massive, massive favorites in this situation. Um, just pretty much 99% on the on the um, win probability chart right there with that kind of lead. Um, and, yeah, wrapping up the third, it's a pretty rough basketball from both teams ending the third quarter. Um, the Haw- the And, yeah, that, that'll take us into the – fourth the Hawks end up losing the quarter by four points 
as the Sixers made their way back into it after the Hawks' big 10-0 run. So, yeah, to cut the lead. They're up by 16 heading into the fourth, which is still just very, very good situation that the Hawks are in overall. I mean, even though you're up by 20 at the half, you, you can survive losing the qu- third quarter by four, by four points. But what they almost didn't survive is what they did in the fourth. The fourth quarter was an absolute doozy, especially in the, in the final few minutes of this one. Um, the 76ers' offense was was firing pretty well in the start of the first quarter, but the Hawks just kept on responding to it. Um, the, the Sixers would cut the lead down to 15, the Hawks would bring it back to 19. They would put it at 17, the Hawks would bring it back to 19. You know, and, and the Hawks just really just had an answer for them um, in the early parts of the fourth quarter. So... That, that, that's pretty much the whole story of the, the first seven minutes of it. Now we're going to get into the final five minutes, or the final 442, rather, of this game, which was, oh my God, just almost cataclysmic disaster from the Hawks. So things are looking good with 442 left. The Hawks lead by 17 points with 442 left. 17. You're a massive favorite right here. It's The Sixers have like a one or less than 1% chance of coming back to win this game. So now let's get into what unfolds. So Philadelphia, after the Hawks lead by 17 with 442 left, they end up cutting the lead down to seven. You know, they really started deploying a ton and ton of full court presses and traps in the final four minutes, and the Hawks just really didn't have much of an answer for it. Um, they were make the Hawks. It was credit credit to the Sixers. They were doing a great job of these full court presses, and they were forcing the Hawks into making some terrible decisions. And the Hawks started turning the ball over all willy nilly, at the end of this game, it was bad. It, and then it was hands on head time, and it was just like, oh my God, Atlanta sports team is about to do this again because, yeah, think the the turnovers and. The Hawks just giving the Sixers every opportunity to get back in this game in the final minutes. But I'm going to get into the final minute 30 where this is where things go off the wall insane. So, uh, Kevin Herter with 132 left gets trapped by one of the full court presses and he has to burn the last Hawks timeout. So the Hawks have no way to stop any Sixers momentum after this if they needed to, because if the Sixers went on a run, because they burned their last timeout. So... Philly then cuts the lead to five after Hawks turnover and Embiid lays the ball in. So it's a five-point game now. Things are still very spooky. Then Kevin Herter on the inbound cannot get the ball out of his hands. And it, there's no timeout, so there's no way to save him. It's a five-second violation. And the Sixers get the ball back. Embiid then scores again. It's now a three-point game. Then on the next possession, on a really broken possession all around for the Hawks, things were looking pretty bad. Bogey hits a huge three. To put up, to put the Hawks up by six with 41 seconds left on a broken possession, and that was just massive. It didn't look like the Hawks were gonna get anything out of this possession, but the fact that they were able to get that three from Bogdanovich was just absolutely huge. Um, this is kind of his pattern and shot that he's had in this playoff, just like the back-breaking three in the final minute. But um, this wasn't the backbreaker because the game was far from over, even up six with 41 left. Um, then the Hawks do get a stop after this and trade but then trade then turns the ball over in the press trying to get the ball out of his hand so he doesn't get trapped and then the Sixers can cut the lead down to three on that falling possession so the Sixers are down three now after that pretty uh pretty big swing there with the trade turnover right after Bogdanovich put him back up by six and Philadelphia continued with the full court press and the traps 
and Kevin Herter makes a pretty pretty nice outlet pass, honestly, after you know he, he kind of had the debacle with a five-second violation and then the, having the call the last time out. But he makes a really nice outlet pass to John Collins, and he has a just wide open toward the basket, and Embiid has to dive and foul him, which then results in a clear path foul because Embiid had to dive and get him. And that puts Collins on the line for two free throws, and the Hawks get the ball. So Collins hits both the free throws, and on the flying possession, the, the, the Hawks are up by five now, and on the flying possession becomes the most insane play of, I, I'm just going to say, probably the most insane play of Trey Young's career, of what he did here. It's insane in a good way, but it also could have been insane in a very bad way if things went wrong. Um, he They have to throw the ball in the backcourt to get it to him because of the hard blitz that the Sixers are putting on the Hawks. He gets the ball into the backcourt. He dribbles it up. He gets a few feet past half court, and he throws up a Hail Mary lob, really, with up five to John Collins. And Collins snags it out of the air over Joel Embiid and slams it home. Um, and Embiid also fouls him on the play, so it was an and one on top of that. But just the absolute confidence that you have to have to throw up that lob the confidence in yourself and the confidence in John Collins that Trey has is insane it's an insane play that he shouldn't have done it <laughs> to be to be honest but he did and I'm I'm glad he did because it worked out perfectly for the Hawks they he got the dunk and the and one so John Collins went on to make the free throw so it was a three-point play that put the Hawks up by eight and it looked like that was the actual dagger but yeah just absolutely Absolutely insane play by Trey Young and John Collins. Credit to John for being able to slam it over Embiid. You know, Embiid wasn't, like I said, not 100% with the meniscus thing. But, yeah, he, and he wasn't really jumping. But, yeah, like that thing, that 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 could have gone wrong pretty quickly. And if it goes wrong, then um, Trey's not looking good. But he's looking really good because it worked out perfectly. So, yeah, after that, Simmons gets intentionally fouled by the Hawks, which, um, I don't. I don't like that at all. I don't. I think that's the one thing um, I disagree that McMillan did in this game. You're up eight. You don't need to foul. I mean, I know Simmons was horrible from the free throw line in this game, but I don't foul up eight with um with like less than twenty seconds left. Like it just doesn't make sense. It just really just gives Philadelphia a chance, and um yeah, and it does give Philadelphia a chance because it ends up costing them. Uh, he misses the first one or he makes the first one and misses the second one. And B then grabs the offensive rebound, puts it in with the foul. Um, so there's three points right there. He goes on to hit the free throw, and it's a four-point possession pretty much for Philadelphia. And that cuts the lead down to four. Then on the inbound pass, Simmons steals it, dunks it, and now it's down to two points. So six points in five seconds for Philadelphia. And if all the stuff that had before this wasn't disastrous, this was the most disastrous sequence in the game for the Hawks. Because now you're only up by two <laughs> with, like, less than ten seconds left. Um, but thankfully, they get the inbound in to Bogdanovich. They foul him. Bogey makes both the free throws. Philadelphia can't score on the other end, and the game was over. So, oh, my God. Just absolutely insanity in the final five minutes. Um from the Trey Lob to the just incompetence on um, going against the full court press and the blitz from Philadelphia, it would was just made made for just um, some pretty stupid basketball and um, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of anxiety for myself personally, just very jittery for about thirty minutes after this game still because the Hawks 
the Hawks get the Hawks had some things go their way. Like obviously the um, clear path foul was huge because that ended up being uh, two points plus an and one on the lob. So pretty much a five point possession for the Hawks there. The Sixers had some pretty large possessions of their own, but the Hawks were able to get that one. Um, so yeah, some things did go the Hawks' way, but not most of the things did, and kind of everything went Philadelphia's way. But the Hawks hang on, one twenty eight to one twenty four is the final. Uh, despite leading by 25 points with 17 minutes left and 17 points with 4 minutes and 42 seconds left, the Hawks win by 4. And that's all that matters. They're up one game to nothing as the underdogs against the one seed. They took the one game at home to start the series, which is huge. All the pressure goes to Philadelphia now for game two because Hawks are their job. You know, in these, these kind of situations where you got the two first games on the road, you want to at least split, and the Hawks have guaranteed that. So even if they do drop game two, it's far from a bad situation for the Hawks. You know, if They have nothing but upside to play for now, because if they win game two and go up 2-0, things are looking rather, rather good for the Hawks. So yeah, some big takeaways really in this game. Um, the Hawks were just absolutely absurd in the first half. Mostly on offense, you know, you couldn't. They they played pretty much perfect first quarter on offense. Um, uh, pretty much a perfect first half, honestly, on offense. Second half got really shaky, um, largely because of the full court press that the Sixers deployed, and it nearly cost them. I mean, then the Hawks probably would have lost this game if they weren't just absolutely absurd in the first half. You know, I think Kevin Herter said after the game, "Thank God we were up 20." And, yeah, I agree with that full stop because if the Hawks weren't just absurd, they're not going to win this game. I mean, they won by four. Like, it wasn't like they ended up winning by ten and they're up by 20 now. They won by four, and the, the Sixers got it to as close as two. So, yeah, really, really glad that they were able to just be nuts in the first. Um, yeah, the six turnovers, in, six turnovers in the fourth quarter, um, not great. Obviously, those are all from the Hawks. Um yeah, the Hawks were great from three-point range in this game, obviously. Uh, they made 10 more than Philadelphia, which is a 30-point swing, which is pretty huge, just making 10 more threes than your opponent. Um, now we're going to get into the individual performances and some just overall team statistics from this game. We'll start off with the Hawks, and we'll go to the 76 because they have some pretty interesting ones too. But, yeah, just all-around solid team effort. We'll start with Trey who was fantastic, um, ends up being minus 11 because all the starters end up being in the minus besides Bogdanovich because he was on the floor when the second unit was going crazy. But, yeah, all all the starters, Bogdanovich was a zero plus minus, but all the other starters were um, negative because they were all on the court as the team was imploding in the fourth quarter. So, yeah, Trey, 35 points, 10 assists, 11 of 23 shooting, 4 of 11 from three, 9 of 9 from the free throw line, uh, 35 points, 10 assists, just another fantastic game from Trey. Um, we can't really ask for more than that. John Collins had a good game, 21 points, 4 rebounds, 7 of 9 from the field, and 3 of 4 from 3. So John was insanely efficient in this game, and that's that's huge for him. Him, him being able to good shoot 3 of 4 from 3 is just such a weapon that the Hawks cat can have. Which having a, like a, a guy like John being able to go sit in the corner and hit three or four threes a night is really good. Uh, Solomon Hill, who was uh, starting in place of DeAndre Hunter, he was fine. Um, took all threes in this game, and he went two of seven. Not great, not horrible. He had six points, three rebounds. Um, so, you know, you you love to have DeAndre in. Um, we'll get into DeAndre more for, for his defense in a minute. We'll go over the 76ers numbers. Um, but we'll go to Capella now. Capella, 11 points and 10 rebounds. Um, Capella wasn't huge on the offensive glass in this game, but uh, he, he did he did his job defensively. 10 rebounds, like I said. He goes 5 of 9 shooting. So 
an okay game from okay game from Clint, but you'll take it. Um, and Bogdanovich was really good too. 21 points on 7 of 17 shooting, 5 of 12 from 3. He had 5 assists and he had 5 rebounds too. So just really solid for game for Bogdanovich overall, even though he had some mishaps in the fourth. But he did have a huge 3 in the fourth as well. So... Uh, now we'll go to the bench, uh, Danilo Gallinari. He had nine points. Um, doesn't seem like great off the bat, but he didn't take many shots. He goes two of four from the field and one of two from three. He had four free throws, um, all four of his attempts he made. So you know, he was efficient, didn't get a ton of points, but he was efficient. Uh, Kevin Herter continues to impress. You know, he kind of had um, some bonehead turnovers and the the time, like the, to the time that he had to burn the last time out in the fourth too which um, wasn't great for him. The, the full-court press was, I think, affecting him more than any of the other guys, really. Um, he had a, more of a rougher time handling it, but his numbers were pretty good. Um, he was pretty nice from uh, the from the field. He goes 6 for 9, um, and he goes 3 of 6 from 3-point land. Pretty good stuff from Kevin. He has finished with the 15 points. Um, then Lou Williams was really solid. Um, I'm pretty sure all of his points came in the second quarter. When he was going crazy to start out the second quarter for the Hawks, he had eight points on two of four three-point shooting, three of six from the field. He was plus 16, um, which was the highest on the team because he was out there when the Hawks were just boat racing the Sixers in the first half. So, yeah, um, Tony Snellen played four minutes, really a non-factor in this game. Um, he was plus nine in the four minutes he played. He didn't have any points. So that just shows you how dominant the Hawks were. Um, with this, with with the non-Trey Young men, minutes, which is just huge for them, and then um, Anyeka Kongwu only took one shot and he made it, so two points for him. He had three rebounds and he looked really solid defensively. Can't really ask more from a Kongwu. He was really, really good for um, his 12-minute stint, I think, especially on the defensive side. So the Hawks end up shooting 51.2 from the field, um, which is good. But the 76ers actually end up with a higher field goal percentage than the Hawks in this game, which was uh was pretty shocking after looking at the game just how good the Hawks from the first half just kind of shows you how much they cooled off but the Hawks go 20 of 47 from three which is a 42.6 percent um so yeah just awesome three-point shooting from the Hawks in this game and they go 20 of 21 from the line it's 95 percent way better than Philadelphia Ben Simmons really drug down their numbers because they shot 68.6 percent from the free throw line 24 of 35. And a lot of that was Ben Simmons, and we'll get into their individual numbers now. We'll start out with Ben, since we're talking about him. He goes 3 of 10 from the free throw line. He was that bad from from the charity stripe. But he gets 17 points, um, and he didn't miss a field goal in this game. He goes 7 of 7 from the field. Um, all of them were just layups. He was just he, – I'm surprised they didn't lean on him more. Um, they're kind of kind of force, force-feeding the ball to Embiid a bit much, I think, um, especially with him being injured. He was very effective. I'll get to him in just a second. But Ben was getting to the rack at will. No one was stopping him. The Hawks didn't really have an answer for him. And um, I just didn't really seem like Philadelphia really um, um, honed in on that and you know, forced him to the forced him to the basket because, like I said, he didn't miss a shot. He went 7-for-7, seven seven, and he was just getting to the rim whenever he wanted. And that is a, a big reason why we missed DeAndre Hunter in this game because he would have been on Simmons mostly, and he's probably the best fit for trying to at least contain Simmons getting to the rim. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can get DeAndre back for game two and avoid Ben Simmons shooting 100% from the field, which I didn't realize that until now looking at the numbers. I didn't realize he didn't miss a shot, I guess, because he missed so many free throws, and it seemed like that he just wasn't, like, perfect offensively, which he wasn't because of the free throws. But, yeah, 7-7 seven seven from the field is pretty good for Ben Simmons. Now I'll get to Joel Embiid, who had 39 points in this game. Um like I said, he has on the partially torn meniscus. 
So pretty impressive performance from him, <laughs> considering that he is playing pretty much hobbled um, with his right knee and just in really rough shape. So 39 points, 9 rebounds, uh, 4 assists. He goes 12 of 21 from the field, just 1 of 3 from 3 points. And uh, got to the line 15 times and made 14 of them. So, yeah, he was huge in this game for Philadelphia. They were pretty, pretty uh, mediocre with him not on the court in this game. Um, uh, Doc Rivers deployed some, he deployed a second unit, full second unit, just like McMillan did, and he left them in for just a shockingly long time without Simmons or Embiid. He just kind of left them out there to die just to get them rest, I guess. I mean, it was just pretty bizarre. You know, I've complained about McMillan's handling of the second unit, but Doc Rivers kind of takes the cake for that. That was pretty rough to watch, but worked out in the Hawks' favor, so I appreciate that from you, Doc Rivers. Um, on to some more performances. Seth Curry, he was really solid shooting in this game. He had 21 points, 7 of 12 from field goals, and 5 of 9 from 3. Um, he missed some pretty open threes, too, so that he, that he usually would make. So, yeah, his um, his numbers probably should be a little higher, honestly, than the 21 points that he got because he probably should have made, like, two or three more threes than he missed. Um, so, yeah, a good game from Curry. Like I, like I said, the Sixers' offense was not the issue. They had 124 points in this game. Um, so, yeah, it was just really their defense and the turnovers in the first half that really cost them. Uh, Tobias Harris had 20 points, uh, 10 rebounds for him as well. Um, he goes eight of thirteen from the field, only one of four from three pointers. So he didn't. He wasn't a huge factor from three. Uh, Danny Green was probably the worst. Had to be the worst player on the team for the <laughs> Sixers in this game. He ends up being positive in the plus minus, but if you take into account his horrid, I mean, not even horrid defense. I mean, they had him on Trey in the first half, and that just it's not even fair to Danny Green. He just can't guard Trey Young. It uh, should have been Matisse Thybulle or Ben Simmons the whole game. And they, for some reason, wanted to try Danny Green, and it just, he got torched in the first half. Like I said, Trey had 25 in the first half, pretty much all on Danny Green's head. Um, but he had four points on the offensive side, and he goes 0-4 from three. And he missed some pretty big threes down the stretch in this game in the fourth quarter. And uh, Danny Green, he he's one of those guys It always gets highlighted when he plays bad, and he played pretty bad in this game. Um, I kind of feel bad for him, honestly, because it's, it's been the same story with him, especially last year with the Lakers. He's just always kind of getting pooped on. Um, so, yeah, sorry, Danny Green, but you had a rough game. Um, now we'll get to Matisse Thibel, who was pretty solid offensively, um, and he was a big part of deploying the blitzes and full-court presses in the, in the second half uh, defensively. But he had 10 points on the offensive side on 4 of 6 shooting, and he went 2 of 4 from 3. So he was really solid defensively and offensively in this game, coming off the bench. Um, Tyrus Maxey was not great at all. Um, he had 6 points on 2 of 8 shooting, missed both of the 3s he took, um, just 2, and he went 2 of 4 from the free throw line. So he's been kind of big off the bench for the Sixers this year, but he was not in this game at all. Um, Shake Milton played 1 minute, uh, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, Korkmaz came off the bench and was actually very effective for them in his 11 minutes um, in the second half for the Sixers. He had seven points on three of five shooting. Um, he made one three on his two attempts, so he was pretty good. And um, that's going to pretty much wrap it up for all of the 76ers team numbers. So, yeah, like I said, all the pressure is now on Philadelphia. Um, they do play Tuesday night. Um, there will be a Atlanta and Philadelphia I don't even know what to call it. Atlanta versus Philadelphia hate day. Um, I don't know what it what it's going to be called because the Hawks and the Sixers and the Braves and the Phillies will all be in Philadelphia 
and all playing starting at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting, um, the animosity between the Atlanta and Philadelphia fans um, of how that's going to be because both Atlanta teams will be in Philadelphia on Tuesday night, both playing at 7 o'clock just across the street from each other. So it's kind of cool. Um, don't know how many times this has happened. I guess you could dig it up and see um, when other times this has happened. I'm sure it's happened other times. But um, pretty cool thing that's happening. I guess you could call it the Atlanta-Philadelphia sports equinox. Um, that's one way to put it um, for Tuesday night, which I'm looking forward to. It's going to be fun watching both those games. Um, and then speaking of the Braves, we will get into them now and their week that they had. And all in all, a good week. You know, they went four and three. They played seven games in seven days. So all in all, a good week for the Atlanta baseball club. Um, and they needed that after what happened last weekend with all the Ozuna stuff, really. Um so, yeah, they start off uh, with a game. They start off this week with Washington at home for four games. Um, and the game one is on Memorial Day Monday, and the Braves get a big win after the bad weekend, like I said. Um, Acuna homers in this game. Charlie Morton was solid. A little bit shaky, but solid overall. Um, Bill Contreras had a big two RBI hit. Um, so, big game, big win after just the really, really rough weekend that this team had on and off the field, really. Um, so, yeah, they go up one game to none in the Washington series. Morton, like I said, kind of shaky in this game. You know, he's kind of been shaky here and there throughout the whole season, but he ends up qualifying for the win from take that what you will. He goes five innings pitch, three earned runs. Did walk three at six strikeouts, but the bullpen was locked after that. They go Jackson to Mentor to Martin to Smith. They all shove, and they give up no – I don't think they gave up a base runner. No, they were perfect. Now that I look at it. Oh, actually, never mind. Luke Jackson gave up the hit. So just one hit from the four rings over from the bullpen. Really solid work from them. Um, that would kind of continue throughout the week. Uh, that's um, they had some good bullpen this week and some bad bullpen, but not really from the big guys, the main guys. I want to move on to game two in this series. Um, Braves get put in a pretty favorable situation early in this game because Steven Strasburg exits with um, just pitching an inning and a third. And they had Max Fried on the mound, so you're thinking, man, I, I, we're in a pretty good spot here with Straws out of the game. They, they weren't because Max Fried did not have his best outing. Um, like I said, Charles for late with injury, but a rough start, and the bullpen did not help Max Fried. Um, you know, Acuna homered again, but it wasn't enough. The Braves dropped game to 11-6. to um, Like I said, Ronald had a huge game in this one. He went 3-4 for four with a walk. And like I said, he homered, but Max Fried goes three and two-thirds, four earned runs, seven strikeouts, which I guess is encouraging. But, um, yeah, not a good start for Max after he had been so good. But he does bounce back later in the week, a little spoiler, a little teaser for later in the week. Um, so now we'll move on to game three. This was the game that I was in attendance of um, foolishly, like an absolute fool, instead of watching the Hawks in the playoffs. Had these had this game planned out, so give me a break. It's not like I went last minute or anything. But the Braves lose this game, too, and just made me feel even more dumb because they lost. Uh, they lose 5-3. to three. Um, Pretty rough start from Drew Smiley. And not all of it's his fault, I will say that. I'll say that not all of it was Drew's fault. Because through four, or the, yeah, through the four innings, he had only given up one run. And the Nationals order is coming up from a third time. And Brian Snicker just insists on letting him face the order for a third time. Even though when he was good, Drew Smiley, he didn't face the order for a third time. So having him do it again 
after the debacle in Boston last week of him facing it, the facing the order for a third time through, doing it again is just incompetence. And he lets him do it again. And shocker, huge shocker, Juan Soto hits a two-run homer, and that puts the Braves. The game was tie going into the to the um the fifth inning, when the third third time the order came through for the Nationals. But yeah, just absolutely to the terrible surprise, Juan Soto hits a home run. And then Smiley gets yanked. So he goes four and a third, three earned runs. Um, he, gets, he does have six strikeouts. But it would have been just a fine outing. It would have been four innings pitched, one earned run. You take that from Drew Smiley every day. But nonetheless, he, Brian Snicker just couldn't take it. He wanted to try to squeeze one more inning out of him. And he gets rocked by Ron Soto. So, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but um, Ozzy does go on to tie the game later at three with a two-run double. Um, but the bullpen gives up two more runs. Um, Minter and Martin give up a run, and the Braves going to lose five to three. So now they go into a pretty big game four to try to split this series at home with the Nationals on Thursday, and they go out and they get a win. They win five to one. Um, Tucker Davidson got the start in this one. He was really solid again. Um, his second start of the year. Ozzy and Dansby both get their 500th hits as Braves. Or not as the Braves, their whole crew, they're the Braves, so it's not just with the Braves, but they're 500th career hits. Um, the Braves cruise to win. They split the series. Like I said, Tucker Davidson, a really, really impressive start in his second start of the season. He goes five and two-thirds innings pitched, no earned runs, only real blemish on the starts that he did walk five, which has kind of been an issue for him um, and throughout his minor league career, too, was um, the walks. But didn't give up any runs, didn't come out of the bottom, only gave up one hit. Um, so, yeah, we'll take five and two-thirds shutout from Tuck Tuck every day of the week. And, yeah, the Braves going to win 5-1. to one. They pull away late in this one with four runs in the sixth, and they add on another one in the seventh. As the game was actually tied at zero when Davidson left. The Nationals get one run in the ninth, but who cares about that because they lost. They suck. I'm just kidding. They do suck, though. All right, we'll head to the big weekend series against the Los Angeles Doyers. And Friday night, things were looking pretty promising early. Um, Ian Anderson looked solid. Freddie Freeman gave the Braves a first-inning lead with a bomb in a dead center field. I was actually at this game, too. Um, so, yeah, Ian Anderson, really solid, carries a no-hitter into the fifth inning. But then the Braves just completely unravel in the inning. Um, the Dodgers score eight runs on three hits in the fifth, which is just kind of hard to do, honestly. They ended up winning the game 9-5, to and they had nine runs on four hits, which is like only like the third time in the history of baseball that that's happened. So, yeah, just absolute, absolute chaos, really, in the fifth, and just not good. Um, Ian Anderson, he ends up having a pretty rough line in the game, four and a third and four in runs, but the runs that he gave up were on two fielder's choices, which, like, both the balls went a total of, like, 30 feet. Not even kidding. Uh, the first one, um, Austin Riley tried to make a play at the plate uh, with Chris Taylor running, and he hits Taylor right in the back. So just bad defense from Riley there. And then um, Luis Urias puts down a bunt, a pretty perfect bunt, actually, and they try to go home with it. And it was just a perfect bunt, and it was a safety squeeze, and the run scores. So two fielder's choices result in runs. Then they bring in Sean Newcomb, whose um, final line looks like this. Third of an inning, three earned runs, three walks. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And the fact, like, when Newcomb enters the game, the game is still in hand. The Braves aren't down 8-1 eight, eight to one when he enters. The Braves are only down 
two to one <laughs> when Sean Newcomb comes in the game. And then, um, yeah, he walks in two runs with the bases loaded. Um, that made it four to one. And then Grant Dayton comes in. He gives up a base hit to Will Smith. That game was another run. The Chris Taylor unloads the bases to make it eight to one. Um, the Braves did threaten with a comeback late in this game. Ozzy had a two run double to make it eight to three. Then the Dodgers kind of had a disaster of their own and like a routine pop-up that would end the inning into shallow left, but it drops. Um, it was Adrianza that hit it. Two runs scored. It's 8-5. to five. Um, But then just more incompetence towards the end with Tyler Matzik. He uh, he gives up a leadoff double to Mookie Betts and then throws two wild pitches in a row and a run score. So um, I don't know how much of those were on Matzik or if they were just uh, in, in, on Contreras as well because he has been pretty rough behind the plate um, defensively this year. So yeah, the, the Braves they they had a little like a little um threat in the ninth inning, but they came up short. They lose nine to five on Friday. Things look bad for this team. So we'll move on to Saturday night. Hopefully, uh things will turn around. And they did not get off to a good start. It was a bad first inning. They give up one run on zero hits and two errors and one hit by pitch. So just the trend continues of just giving runs to the defending world champions <laughs> in the first inning. But the Braves do respond to just giving up the one run. They get five runs off of Kershaw in the third inning. Um, Freddie, Ozzie, and Dansby were the contributors there. Um, Charlie Morton, like I said, got off to a rough start in the first inning. Um, but And he didn't have a great start overall. Again, he gives up three runs in the following inning, which made the game 5-4 uh, to four, right after the Braves scored three or five runs. But um, Abraham Almonte, honest Abe, hits a solo shot to give the Braves some insurance. And the bullpen shoves. They give up nothing. The Braves win 6-4 to four against the Dodgers. Pretty huge win overall um, after having just a disaster of a game on uh, Friday night. Morton goes five innings pitched. Only, only Gives up four runs, but only two are earned. It's because of the, the errors from him and Austin Riley. And, um, yeah, ERA on the season is at 4.21. So he's been fine, even though it kind of seems like he's been really rough. But he's been fine overall in the year. Like I said, the bullpen shove, mentor Jackson, Matzik, Martin, Will Smith, all pitched scoreless innings. Will Smith actually strikes out the side for the save. So pretty impressive outing by him as the Braves snag a W on Saturday night. And I'll move on to Sunday's game. They're playing at the exact same time as the Hawks. So I didn't get to watch a ton of this game, but I was flipping back and forth, checking out what was going on. Uh, the Braves got out to an early 2 to nothing lead in this game. Um, Ender and Ciarte ended up having two RBIs. Um, Almonte got the first run of the game across with an RBI double. Ozzy then doubles again. He's been insane lately. He's been just out of his mind good. And that put the Braves up 2 to nothing. Um, Albert Pujols had both of the Dodgers RBIs today. Um, he had an RBI single, and he also homered in the ninth inning. Um, but, yeah, like I said, Ender and Ciarte had two RBI day. Uh, Max Freed outdueled Trevor Bauer. In this one, which is a, a rematch of their playoff game last year between the Braves and Reds, which both those guys shoved in that game. But Max pitched very well. He goes six innings pitch, just one earned run, four strikeouts. So a good outing for a good bounce back outing after his bad one against the Nationals early in the week. And Trevor Bauer goes six innings pitch, three earned runs, four walks, and seven strikeouts. Um, one thing that was really like um, floating around was that. Trevor Bauer's spin rate had fell off a cliff in this game, and this was his first start since the MLB announced that um, if you had a foreign substance as a pitcher, you have a 10-game suspension. 
So yeah, just kind of a head scratcher there that his RPMs dipped as soon as um, MLB announced that you cannot use any foreign substances as a pitcher anymore. It resulted in 10 game suspension. Um, but I, I, I'm just I, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not going to get too deep into that. But just a little bit uh, suspicious. I'll just say that for Bauer because he had the league high spin rate coming into today. But um, yeah, we won't talk about that anymore. That's just uh, just some goofy stuff that I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, Braves win four to two. They take the series against the Dodgers, which is pretty big, um, pretty big bounce back for them. After after the bad week that they had last week, they go four and three on the week, which isn't awesome. You like to go five and two, or maybe even six and one or something like that. But we'll take a four and three week when you got to play the Dodgers on the weekend. So yeah, solid all around. Um, looking ahead, like I said, they'll be in Philadelphia this week. They're off on off on Monday. I'm in Philadelphia Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then they're on the road. They'll be in Miami for the first time this year, this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So that's what the Braves week looks like, all on the road, a little road trip for the Bravos. Um, that'll do it for all the Braves talk. Um, another note, uh, the... The carousel of fourth outfielders seems to be working for the Braves and filling in the hole that Marcelo Zuna has left. Um, I just want to briefly mention that I don't think that's going to work, and I think the Braves need to do something long-term about that. Just going to throw that out there now. I don't know when, if when, if and when they're going to do that. We'll just see. Um, another thing that was worth noting that I almost forgot, Shane Green did join the club for Sunday's game. He didn't pitch. He did get warmed up because um, the Braves were threatening to blow the game open, actually. In the bottom of the eighth, they did end up doing that, so Will Smith came in and got the save. Um, but, yeah, Chang Green with the big league club now and available out of the bullpen, which is uh, notable because the Braves need that. Need some more bullpen help, even though the bullpen all in all had a solid week from the the main, main guys in the pen. So, yeah, that'll do it for the Braves, and that's going to do it for the episode. If you made it this far listening, I appreciate it. Um, if you would, give me a download, give me a follow. Um, I really thank you for listening if you made it this far. And I will see you in the next one.